Hello and welcome to IMI's Talking Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Hugh, and today we're talking about how to make your organization more environmentally friendly. In today's episode, I'm joined by Catherine Wilkinson, lead author for the New York Times bestseller, Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. We talked about those practical things leaders can do in industries from food to government to reduce the environmental impact of their organizations and the potential innovations out there that might change industries. We recorded this conversation back in late 2019 after IMI's National Management Conference, where Catherine was a keynote speaker. Hope you enjoy it. So to begin, can you just talk to me a little bit about Project Drawdown, the concept of Drawdown first, and then how you are tackling it? Yeah, so so the word Drawdown um, is kind of a you know, sort of a wonky scientific term. Uh, it means the point in time when the concentration of greenhouse gases, the heat-trapping gases in our atmosphere, stops rising, which it's been doing for quite some time, and actually begins mm. to decline. So drawdown is that turning point <laughs> from <laughs> more and more and more greenhouse gases to actually year to year mm. reduction of, of greenhouse gases. You know, we really believe that it is kind of one of the critical turning points for life on this planet. Yeah. Um, so our mission is about helping the world reach drawdown quickly, safely, and equitably. And part of the way that we do that is by focusing on solutions. Mm. The problem of climate change can just feel so overwhelming. Um, and so we set out to essentially gather humanity's collective wisdom mm. about tools and technologies and practices that we already have. They're proven, they're economically viable, they're scientifically valid, um, but they've never been put in mm. one place before. Mm. Um, and we're continuing to do our research and our communication efforts around solutions, um, and, and really ultimately hoping to empower the solutionaries who move those things forward. So Catherine, welcome. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Um, one of the key themes that comes out from Project Drawdown is that there's no silver bullets. Mm -hmm. uh, the solutions will come cumulatively. How easy of a message is that to get across? Mm. Um, it's very hard to get people to change one behavior. How can we get masses of people to change masses of behavior? Yeah. It would be a much easier sell if there was one or two or five uh, silver bullets. You know, on the one hand, you can look at it and think, oh my gosh, I mean, there's so much that we have to do. The silver lining of the no silver bullets is, oh my gosh, there's so much mm. we can do. Mm. Um, and there's something here that lights me up. Maybe it's in my... Uh, sort of my life or at home, maybe it's in my community, my workplace, mm. something I am uh, I'm wanting from government or business at large. Um, so I think it's sort of nice that there are actually many entry points yeah. um, and, and many leverage points. And as a silver lining, the, the cause, cause is the wrong word, but climate change itself, it can be very much a unifying purpose for people within a company, right? Yeah, it, it's certainly, you know, the, the company that I know best um, also happens to be really a, a leader on yep. this, which is Interface. And, um, you know, I think they were sort of okay, fair to middling yep, on, yep. on kind of engagement and culture before they took this on. But it's quite amazing how much they all feel like they are leaning together yep. and sort of charging in the same direction. Um, 
and and even when you know even when you've got someone who's sort of cleaning up the factory floor they feel like they're they're part of that um and so their yeah their kind of engagement scores went off the charts um and they were able actually to attract a lot of talent because of the mission who might not otherwise ever have been interested in that industry and what other side effects um come about from when you when you set these goals within a company you know What's the sort of shifts that you see, innovation, what, what are the things that you see? Yeah, Interface uh, talks a lot about the impact that it had on, on innovation. Um, so for example, uh, they, they started to ask these questions around cutting down waste, right? And some mm. of that was around, well, we've got to tweak this, this process or this machine yeah. in manufacturing. But some of it was on the design side. So. They had a design team, this was kind of early in, in their, their work on, on sustainability, to look at, well, how does a forest make a floor, <laughs> right? Um, you know, we make a floor like this tile yeah. looks just like the next tile and the pattern's got to be in this way. But when they studied the floor of the forest, they were like, well, there are actually, um, there are no repetitions, right? And you could sort of pick up any part of the forest floor and stick it next to the other and it would be fine. So they created these patterns that could be pieced together. Tiles could touch any other tiles oh, okay, in any yeah. pattern and it all worked, which also meant, you know, if you're a customer and you've got a stain, you just pop up that tile and put any other from, from, from that batch in and it all worked. So they were able to reduce the time of installation to reduce the cost mm. of installation and any waste from installation as well. It's interesting. I remember that I was told once that they, the helicopter was designed based on the dragonfly. Ah, right? looking, yeah. looking to nature. Yeah, na- nature is like pretty incredible. Yeah. I mean, the fact that a caterpillar can become a butterfly, like we've got a lot to learn. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the revelations for me today, or maybe you'd call it a mindset shift, mindset shift is that I've stopped looking at my personal life in terms of what I can do with uh, sustainability and, and what I can do to impact the environment and started to work, look at how my personal job and my work impacts. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that mindset shift and what what effects does it have? Well, firstly, is it true? Do we have more environmental impact footprint in work than at home? Yeah, you know, I think in some ways it's <clears throat> it's sort of a bummer that we have spent so much time telling people you know, sort of things to tweak at home or yeah. um, or in their daily lives. Not because that doesn't matter. It, it certainly does matter. And, and what we see is that actually, you know, these behaviors open up kind of a cultural change, mm. right? When, when someone sees you doing something, well, maybe they're more likely to try it. Um, but nonetheless, you know, I think we've missed out on opportunities to say, hey, but actually what we need is for people to bring their superpowers to yeah. this work. Um, and you know, your superpowers may be being a storyteller, your superpowers may be in engineering, your superpowers may be as a teacher. Um, and we need all of those for this big transformation. Um, and so I cringe kind of every time I see the like, you know, five things you can do. And it's like, yeah, but you're yeah. not asking for the biggest thing of all, um, yeah. which, is, which is to take this on um, you know, in, in your work and, and with your, your talents. And you talked about there the superpowers. I, I suppose the superpowers that we had in the room today was leadership. So we had lots and lots of leaders in there. So I'd actually like to go through uh, just what they can do and what their greatest opportunities to change how their organizations are. Yeah. So let's get into solutions, basically. Yeah. 
Before we go into specifics, are there any general rules, guidelines, philosophies that leaders should keep in mind when applying the solutions like Project Rawdown have outlined, many sure. of them into their unique situation? Yeah, you know, I think it's, it is really helpful to remember that in part, the climate crisis is a leadership crisis, right? Um, so leaders have a, a critical role to play. And I think one of the things you can get sort of stuck on is a sense that you've got to have it all figured out, mm. right? Um, so sort of you don't don't want to step out and, um, you know, make a statement or set a target because you don't know exactly how everything will, yeah. will go or will work. And and I think the, the truth is that no one knows how everything should go or will work in this moment. Um, and so we really do need that boldness of mm. leadership and, and a willingness to lead from a place of what you know is the right thing to do. And then to rally, right, kind of yeah. rally the community, rally the organization around that work. One solution most closely associated with uh, a silver bullet is the global carbon tax. Yeah. Is something to push the economy away from carbon producing processes. I'm not so particularly interested in carbon tax. I'm actually more interested in regulations, rules, mm. governments pushing the economy. How much of a role is that going to have to play? Carbon tax, I think, has has an important role to play. Mm. Um, but what we see is that carbon tax works best in particular sectors, okay. so particularly electricity. Already. Okay. Um, and it works best with relatively advanced technology. Um, so if we tried to carbon tax our way uh, to where we are now on mm. solar power from the very beginning, it would have had to be a politically untenably high oh, carbon okay. tax, right? Yeah. So very targeted subsidies for innovation and development um, and, and uh, an early adoption really helped that take off. Similarly, you know, on something as diffuse as uh, personal transportation, very hard to get a tax mm. that high, but a very targeted tax incentive for electric vehicles mm -hmm. works incredibly well. So I think it's it's worth remembering that um, there are kind of different tools, different rule changes or regulations or incentives or taxes um, that may be the right thing in different sectors and depending on where a technology mm. sits. Um, you know, we're, we're in a place in the US where it's, you know, we haven't been able to get a carbon tax passed, even in states that are quite, uh, have strong democratic yeah. majorities. Um, so, you know, I think sometimes when we focus too much just on that, we are overlooking other opportunities that might be quite palatable and, and could lead to quick change. Again, it's so nuanced, it's uh, very complex. Um, I want to get into specific industries now, actually. Um, there are a lot of people in the room today uh, who represented some of the biggest food companies in the world. Mm -hmm. I know for a fact that many of them are working positively towards this sustainable future um, and they're making very tough decisions. Where do you personally see the future of food going, both in how we produce it and consume it? So I think food is really exciting because it is, <clears throat> it's, it's really the only sector where you can pull big levers on avoiding emissions mm. and big levers on sinking carbon. Um, so that gives the food world a ton of power. Um, also, it means there's just more complexity involved. And so 
big work to be done on shifting uh, shifting diets towards kind of healthy, plant-rich yeah. diets. Um, big work to be done on reducing food waste. Mm-hmm. And then regenerative agriculture is this huge opportunity that, you know, it, what it does for the climate is that you're sequestering carbon and biomass and soil. When you do that, you create healthier agricultural lands. You create more resilient food systems, um, all things you need when you're facing a changing climate. Um, and, and what food companies, I think, can help with there is that a lot of times farmers are being incented mm. uh, to use practices that are not good for the planet. Um, and oftentimes they would like to move, actually, mm. towards a different sort of system, but can't finance that, right? Um, It may take two or three years to kind of make the changeover. So doing some of that targeted support with farmers, and I think we see this with some of the kind of early organics companies and things, really building cooperatives of farmers and and supporting them. Um, Because I think farmers, I think sometimes feel like they're being painted as villains in this all of a sudden. That farmers have the capacity to be heroes in this as well, but I think we, we owe it to them to really help them uh, to do that. They're also going to be on the front line of many of the negative effects. They are. I mean, we, we've we seen... Um, there seems to be a big shift in American opinion based on farmers, really. Big shift, yeah. Um, you know, we've had these massive floods in the Midwest where you've got family farms that have been operating for generations yeah. who may not be able to bounce back. I, I live in Atlanta and in southwest Georgia, the damage from Hurricane Michael means, you know, pecan farms that have been passed yeah. down for generations, they're not viable anymore. Um, and so, yeah, really thinking about farmers as front lines for impacts and front lines for solutions, I think, is is critical. I want to actually get into two very small things, but they really they hit home for me. First of all, was the image of the cows grazing in woodland, yeah, <laughs> which is so obvious. But it just, I, I've spent my entire life looking at cows and fields. I never <laughs> thought they could. Yeah. Um, my second one was actually the algae mm-hmm. um, that you talked about. Um, if you introduce 2% into the cow's meat, it how much does it reduce their methane? Yeah, so so this is all being tested in yeah. different parts of the world. But um, this Asparagopsis taxiformis, <laughs> this red algae seaweed. Yeah, studies have shown 2% of feed can reduce methane emissions somewhere in the range of 60 to 80 percent. That's very, very significant. I mean, hugely significant. Um, and, you know, then the question becomes, well, how do you grow, how do you grow seaweed at scale, yeah. right, to, to, to have that impact? But, yeah, I think it's it's a reminder that not all of this is about technology. Yeah. Silvopasture is an ancient farming practice. Yeah, yeah. Um, Seaweed is nature provisioned, right? Um, I presume seaweed would also have the double effect of catching more carbon. It should do, yeah. yeah. It was just, it really struck me. Um, my big question is why isn't everyone doing it? Like if, if Ireland were to put that on part of their agenda, we do produce a lot of methane, we're famous for our cattle. That seems a very quick, obvious solution. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I think it's a great, it's a great question. Um, <laughs> is it I, just that people haven't told, been told about it? I think sometimes it is just a matter of education, and I think you know we're creatures of of habit. Yeah. I, I have a dear friend who farms um, in Missouri, and and he's been testing some things with biochar and uh, and cover crops and uh, not tilling their fields. You know, and there are other farmers in the area who are like, 
what the hell are you doing, son? You know, like, they're like, uh, this is not, this is not the way we farm, you know? Yeah. And so some of it is, I think, doing also some of that kind of peer-to-peer education of like, look, this is working for yeah. me. This is working on our farm. Come check it out. Um, I think that can be really powerful. Let's move on to probably more representative in the room will be service companies, you know, mm-hmm. the banks, insurance companies, hospitals, charities. These aren't, they're not fracking, you know, right. they're not extracting <laughs> oil out of the ground. It seems less obvious what structural changes they can make to become more sustainable. What in simple terms can they do? And I know it's not simple terms, but what can they start to do? Yeah. So every company that I know of anyway is a consumer of energy. Yep. So thinking about where that's coming from, if there are opportunities to shift to renewables, mm-hmm. that's big. Um, things you can do to help employees not have to get in a car and not get in an airplane. Um, telepresence, remote working, yeah. uh, doing meetings by video rather than than in person if, if travel's involved. Um, also, most companies are having food at some point or another. So uh, thinking about making sort of plant-rich offerings the norm, uh, looking at reducing food waste and composting. These are, are definite opportunities. Um, <clears throat> I also think there's a huge role for companies to think about how they are culture makers, right? How they are communicating, what they're communicating. Um, Lots of opportunity there internally and externally through sales and marketing. Um, And, you know, I I think also to whatever degree companies are engaged with policymakers, Mm -hmm. that's another another intervention point. we can't do it all, we can't do it perfectly, but there are a, an abundance of ways to begin. And the good news is there's sort of no wrong place to start. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you mentioned the public sector there, again, they're well represented in the room, um, probably have the most potential power to move the needle, but also probably have more obstacles than anyone else. Again, what lever should they be looking to press within the government structures? Yeah, I think we, you know, we think a lot about some of the things we were talking about earlier around kind of shifting regulation or taxes, but actually government does a lot of investment, yeah. right? So investing in early stage um, technologies, for example, that may not be market ready, right? Mm. Um, may not be a bet that, uh, that, that finance is willing to take, but government can. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think that can be incredibly uh, powerful. So incentivize the innovation as much as anything else. Yeah, that's right. Um, and governments are, they're big buyers, right? Yeah. They, they source a lot of energy. They own a lot of buildings. They own fleets of vehicles, yeah. right? These are all things that, uh, again, kind of government can be an engine of change that, that then ripples out from there. Planning and infrastructure is another, another huge yeah. area. I, it seems to me, especially when we just talk about that public sector, it needs leadership from the top because as civil servants sitting in their division in one corner of the country will feel powerless. Whereas if there's a big sort of concerted policy from the top, if everything we do is, has to be done through a prism of sustainability, it might actually happen. Yeah. So is that what's required in your organization? If a leader is listening to this out there, do they have to actually just set a goal? and then go for it. Yeah, I think leadership from the top is always incredibly powerful, but leadership from the top that also invites leadership mm. from, uh, you know, from, from the front lines of the organization. Um, you know, I think, I think what we're seeing in this moment of, 
you know, I, I like to think that we're hitting a bit of a, a tipping point mm. on kind of public yeah. concern and engagement. And I think that's happened because you've got kind of grassroots movements, you've got political leadership in some places, you've got business leadership in other places, you've got education working on this more and more. And it's the confluence of all mm. of these things that's um, that's really powerful. But I think unless really accelerated change is invited mm. or, or even sort of necessitated from the top, it can be very hard uh, for others to kind of move in the way that they might be yeah. quite passionate about doing. And I don't know if you'll be able to have an answer for this, but how much power should you give to uh, what I'm thinking about is the financial controller that you spent two grand more on a boiler because it's more sustainable. How much power should you give throughout the organization to make these sustainable decisions? I mean, I think there are, there for, particularly for companies that kind of haven't done much, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that will very yeah. obviously and, and pretty quickly save them money. And I think it gets more complicated. You push further and it's like, well, maybe there's not an obvious mm. financial return here, but this is still kind of the, the right thing to do. And I think remembering that financial return is also about employee engagement it's also about employee retention and attracting yeah. talent it's about goodwill in the marketplace and um, kind of consumer commitment so all of these things that are sometimes harder to measure um, yeah. also can can be a real financial upside super um, I want to talk about one quick thing that I always love to listen to is the four-day week ah, so <laughs> I'll take it, it. yeah <laughs> It's, it's in a lot of headlines now, and it, it seems to be a, a solution for a lot of things. And it's a nice, again, we're looking for messages. How does the four-day week play a role in that sort of messaging as much as anything else? Yeah, I think it is always really helpful when we have something that's like, you know, you say four-day week, and it's like, okay, got it. Yep, I sort of, I know what, what that means. Mm. Um, and, and there's often so much complexity in climate and, and these solutions. Um, so I think things like that are powerful and people, you know, people see the upside to themselves mm. quite immediately in that, um, you know, oh, I know what I would do, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> With an extra day of sanity or <laughs> whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. But do you think we, we now have to start structuring how we work totally different in terms of working remotely, uh, even all gathering in the same building every day? Do you think, in 30 years time will just have to have changed totally. Yeah, I think there will be a, a lot of change. I mean, even at, at Project Drawdown, I, I've worked remotely from the start because um, most of our team was in, uh, in in the Bay Area in San Francisco. I'm in Atlanta, but actually um, we just in the last year gave up our office space um, because people were commuting quite far and yeah. actually they were finding that they were more productive oftentimes working from home. now. Sometimes that means folks need to sort of convene at a coffee shop yeah. or at a co-working space. Um, but it, it really has largely gotten rid of the, the commuting that, that we were doing. Super. So we started at the Project Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. What's next? What's the, the next steps uh, for the project? So we're continuing to uh, to kind of deepen and refine our research. We're adding some new areas of research, for instance, uh, solutions that are ocean or marine-based mm -hmm. solutions. Currently, uh, Dr. Sarah Myrie is, is leading our analysis in that space. We're also working more and more on partnerships. Um, so Intuit made a big announcement this week 
about not just going for carbon neutrality by 2030, but actually doing 50 times drawdown of their 2018 carbon footprint by 2030. Um, That's one of those goals that it's like, how in the world do we do that? Don't yet know, um, but we're going to be partnering with them uh, to, to to help them figure that out. Um, and I'm really excited about kind of these these kinds of collaborations that we're engaging in now, of really trying to be on the bleeding edge of mm. what's possible and the bleeding edge of change, and then hopefully being able to really learn some things and take those insights and um, and kind of case studies and make them more widely available. Brilliant. Uh, Catherine, it was a genuinely incredible session. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for coming in here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.